But I said, Noah, have you missed the meal? Have I not come through for you? And yet that is what we do with God. What we begin to do is say, but Jesus, but Jesus, where is this? But Jesus, but Jesus, where is that? And Jesus comes and in His loving words say, have I not taken care of you? Have I not met your needs? Have you ever gone hungry? He looks at me and that one he laughs at. He says, look at you, man. You haven't missed the meal. You haven't missed the dessert either. And yet, that's what we do. You know, I want to use this passage to unveil that deep down inside, God desires nothing more than for us to trust Him because that brings Him glory. Because deep down inside, we fight that with every part of our being. We think that our financial, material, emotional, even spiritual needs will not be met. And I want to use this as a reminder that God is the God of abundance. He's a God of blessing. He's a God of overflowing grace and mercy. And listen to me, His provisions aren't just adequate, they are ample. God wants you to be blessed. And He wants to show you through this miracle all about that. As we look at this feeding of the 5,000, we see questions being answered. Questions like this. How can I enjoy God's abundant blessing on my life? We don't need to be asking the question, as a Christian, how can I survive? How can I make sure that I get the bare minimum I need? But the question we must ask today and allow Jesus to answer is, how can I enjoy the abundant blessing of Christ? David spoke about this. This desire to have Jesus fulfill His every longing and passion. And this is what he said in Psalm 24 and 5. May God give you the desires of your heart and make all your plans succeed. We will then shout for joy when you are victorious and we will lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Then just one psalm later he says, You have granted him the desire of your heart and have not withheld the request of his lips. This is the Christian life. That God would come and He wouldn't just meet our needs, but He would bless us beyond measure. So how do we begin to live that way in the Christian life? There are three aspects in this miracle that I want to look at. The first thing we must do in your outlines, you will see, is the first thing we must do is understand that there is no problem. There is no problem too big for Jesus to solve. There's no problem too big for Jesus to solve. Now I want you to say that back to me because I don't think we... Fully recognize it. So repeat that with me. There is no problem that too big for Jesus to solve. Do you believe that in your heart? Do you believe that there is nothing that Jesus can't accomplish? The first thing we see in this uh, miracle is that when a problem comes, it's not too big for Jesus to handle. Now I'll tell you that this uh, miracle is of great importance. It is the only miracle performed by Jesus that is recorded in all four Gospels. The only one. So that tells me if God saw it in His divine plan to have that recorded in each of the four Gospels, man, there must be something of great importance to pull from it. We see that this miracle is seen in Matthew 14, Mark 12, and Luke 9. All of them recording much of the same information, but each of them adding a little bit more. And today, we don't look at those Gospels in depth, but we're going to look at John chapter 6. So if you haven't gotten there yet, 
Open your Bibles to John chapter 6. And let's look first of all at the first five verses of the, uh, of the chapter. And John gives us context again. Again, it says in John 6, 1, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed Him because they saw the miraculous signs He had performed on the sick. Now then Jesus went up to a mountainside and sat down with His disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward Him, He said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? Now we need to understand that Jesus again is in the northern part of Israel. Now it says that Jesus, John tells us that this happened sometime later than what was going on in chapter 5. Now in verse 5, look at what he says. He says that the Passover feast was near. Now many scholars believe that it's probably pretty common knowledge to think that the feast in Jerusalem in John chapter 5, remember, Jesus heads to Jerusalem. We learned this two weeks ago. He comes to a pool near the Sheep Gate and he's there for some unnamed feast. Well, many scholars believe that might have been the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Purim, which would have happened sometime in the fall. But now it says sometime later. And then he says in verse 5 that it's sometime during uh, near the Passover feast, which would say that what is happening here is we've got a six-month span going on. That the feast, the unnamed feast, was probably one of them in the fall, and now going into Passover, which is right around the time of Easter each year. And what we find is, is that we're in the springtime. So we've got about six months that have passed from the end of John chapter 5 to the start of John chapter 6. Now in verse 2, look at what it says. It says that John tells us that there's a multitude that's following him. A great multitude, a great crowd. At this point, Jesus' ministry is bigger than it's ever been before. We know that at that point, John's ministry had decreased as Jesus' ministry had increased. We know that at this point, Jesus' popularity had risen to the top of the charts. We knew that now thousands were talking about this man, this rabbi, this prophet who had come uh, from Nazareth and who had been able to do all these mighty acts and miraculous things. And so they follow Him. We know that in John chapter 5, we see a phase of confrontation started between the religious leaders and Jesus. This is when the Pharisees really start getting ticked off with Jesus. This is when they begin to talk about crucifying Him or at least arresting Him for the things that He's done and the things that He has said. Now, look at what it says in verse 3. It says that while a crowd was following Jesus... Many of the other Gospels share, and John does a little bit as well, that they're going to a mountainside. Now, the other Gospels tell us that it's to be alone. That Jesus desires to be alone. Why would He want to be alone? He's Jesus. Doesn't Jesus want to hang out with His people? Doesn't He want to make sure that He's interacting with us? Isn't that the kind of person Jesus was? Well, we see throughout the Gospels that Jesus many times would try to go and get away, to be by Himself. We know that He would spend many hours spending time in the quietness talking with His Father. But there's some significance that may have resulted in what is happening here in verse 3. First of all, we see from the other Gospel writers, in Matthew and Mark, when they give their uh, um, uh, version of this miracle, it tells us that it comes on the heels of the beheading of John the Baptist. Now, we know that John the Baptist was the cousin 
of Jesus. Okay? And we know that, of course, Herod comes and his, I believe it's his uh, daughter, daughter-in-law. Anybody remember? Who wanted the head of John the Baptist on the platter? Son? Salome. Wife's daughter. Okay, all right, whatever. Read it. Find out. We're of a non-consensus. So what happens when elders have that? We go and we try to study on our own, okay? All right, so we've got John the, John the Baptist's head placed on a platter. Pretty gruesome. Jesus probably is grieving. One of the commentators said that probably what was going on is Jesus wanted to get away just to grieve. But another uh, person, in fact, Luke tells us, in Luke uh, chapter 14, I believe, that right after, or right before uh, the multitude comes, Jesus is receiving back the twelve who have gone out on their first evangelistic trip. He sends out the twelve, remember? And they go and they're to preach the gospel and tell them that the kingdom of God is near. And they come back. Well, why would Jesus want to go? Well, maybe it was grieving over John the Baptist. We're not sure. Or it could have been that Jesus just wanted to spend time with the twelve and say, hey, what went on? Tell me about your journey. Tell me what you learned. Explain to me. Share the excitement that's going on. Maybe it was that. It could have been that Jesus just wanted to rest. Maybe it wasn't about John the Baptist. Maybe it wasn't about the evangelistic trip. Maybe it was just they wanted to rest. That it was a long day of ministry. Remember, Jesus had to deal with the same issues we did in the humanity of being us. He understood that. And He probably may have been tired. Now, very frequently we know that Jesus would go and spend time just beginning to kind of cap off His day by resting. Yet, look at what it says. You see anywhere in there that He yells out to the crowd, leave me alone? Does He say, hey, crowd, I know you want more of me. I know I'm pretty popular in your eyes right now, but give me a break. Leave me alone. Don't you see that maybe I'm grieving over the loss of a close relative? Don't you see that I just want to hang out with my close friends? Can't you see that I'm tired? I don't know about you, but in my heart, in the humanity sometimes, there are times I just want to cry that out to people. Don't you see that I'm hurting? Don't you see that I'm busy? Don't you see that I don't want to be around people? But that's not what Jesus says. There's nowhere in there. What does it say in Mark? In the book of Mark, it says that when he looked out to the crowd, he saw the crowd and he had compassion on them. And it says that he saw them and he describes them as sheep without a shepherd. And it says that he taught them. Remember, again, Jesus is bearing all the fatigue and all the grief that we do in our own humanity. And in fact, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of those gospel writers say that the disciples want them to be dismissed. What the disciples say in the other Gospels is, you know what, Jesus, just kind of get rid of them. Send them home. Let them fend for themselves. Because the longer they stay here, the more we spend time with them, the more it's going to be on us to take care of their needs. So just release them. Let them go take care of it themselves. But Jesus doesn't say that. How true is that of us as human beings, as Christians? So many times we love to minister if I was to ask you how many people like to serve God and to serve in the church, and people would raise their hand and say, yeah, I enjoy it. It's enjoyable. But let me tell you something. Where we, fault, where we fall in fault in that is that many times we'll serve as long as it works on our time frame. As long as it's easy. 
as long as it's fun. But I will tell you something I've learned in the four years I've been an elder at this church. Ministry never works on my timetable. Ever. You know, every time I tell my wife, well, I've got an elder meeting or I've got a meeting with so-and-so, I'm going to do some counseling, I can assure you, as sure as my name is Tim, none of those meetings have ever gotten done early. Always longer. They always take longer and they're always more... Someone say, hey, I just want to talk with you about something. It's not going to take... You know, give me five minutes and, uh, and it's just about this little, little problem. And then this little problem becomes this huge thing that spanned years. It always is more complicated. Understand, when you work with people, it is always more complicated than what they will say it is. It always is that way. And yet, you know what we do when that happens? Oh, you know, I'm, I'm feeling a little burned out. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's hard to do the ministry and, you know what, so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna step away. You know, I wish we would get a mindset as a church that ministry is difficult. That it means that at the late hours of the night, that it means that we're gonna have to drive when we just get home from work, that we're gonna have to go and drive and deal with a certain issue or a certain uh, project that we're working on. That we would know when we say yes to a ministry or yes to serving God, that it means that God has got a pager on us and He's going to say, I'm going to beep you at any time that I need you. And we would say, all right, I can sign up for that. I'm willing, even if it's rough, even if it's tough, that I'm going to serve in that ministry. I'll tell you, there have been many times that while I love preaching, there have been many times I don't like preaching. I'll tell you, I got home last night, and this is part of the trials of being bivocational. We were down serving an event down south of Yorkville. And I was out on the grill all last night getting pummeled by icebergs of ice just coming at me. And my wife didn't pack a nice stocking cap for me, so my good old bald head just kept getting nailed. And I'm sitting there going, I can't wait till I get to bed. And what happens? I go home, and what do I have to do? i got to go over my message. i got to work on it. And I wanted to say, you know what, I'm just going to get up tomorrow morning and say, you know what, it's icy, everybody stay home. Everybody just stay home. Because if you don't come to church, then I don't have to preach to you. But I can't do that, can I? Because ministry means sometimes leaving our passions, our desires, and even, in fact, pushing away some of the issues that you've got to take care of those that God has called you to minister to. I don't care whether it's the nursery or it's the little kids in Sunday school class or whoever it is. God has called a group of people for you to minister to. Whether you're involved in a ministry, you've got a name tag as a director or as a small group leader, God has given you a group of people that He's called you to minister to. And the question is, are you going to be like the disciples who say, just leave us alone? Or are you going to be like Christ who looked with compassion and saw that He needed to minister to them? Now, That's not even in my outline. I'm not even sure how much of that's in my notes. But let's look at what the outline has to say this morning. Look at what it says in verse 5. When Jesus looked up, He saw a great crowd coming toward Him. Now, we are told in the text that this crowd was about 5,000 people. And we're told 5,000 men. So if it's 5,000 men, it depends on what the New Testament writers were writing or meaning when they wrote that. It could have meant that it was just a men's ministry. And that 5,000 men that Jesus said, all right, come hang out. It's just going to be a guy's night out and uh, we're going to talk. Well, no, we don't think that's what happened because people just kind of came. It was an impromptu gathering. So what many scholars believe that the men who were counted 
brought their families as well, which would make this number somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 15,000 people. But let's stick with 5,000. Let's just stick with the number John gave. Now, I've long desired to talk about this passage because as a caterer, thinking about the logistics of this, I will tell you there is one day a year that I serve 5,000 people. It's the third weekend in July. I will tell you that it takes about 40 staff members and it takes about two weeks to plan to deal with the 5,000 people I serve that weekend. We're talking ordering thousands of pounds of food. And yet Jesus takes care of it. Talk about a great manager. You know, someone said, are you going to be able to cater in heaven? I say, probably not. My specialty is pork chops, so that rules me out. And I said, Jesus has already got it put together because I couldn't do it with 12 employees. I couldn't do it if I tried. But Jesus was able to, and He didn't even have to bring any grills or any vans. He just took care of it right there. But we see that what happens is, is many times when we look at this, We think about the organization behind it. How did Jesus do it? The logistics. In fact, I heard a famous uh, large church pastor once share at a leadership conference that the miracle was not the reason for the text. And that, in fact, there was really no, in essence, spiritual meaning to this text, that we read into it too much. But what the Word is trying to tell us, what John is trying to tell us, is that we need to be good organizers. And we need to implement leadership and delegate authority and responsibilities to other people. I'll tell you, after a week of study, I don't see anything like that. I see the miracle and great spiritual value to this passage. So what are we to learn from it? There are three things we must understand. If we want to believe that God or Jesus is big enough to solve any problem, first of all, we must understand that Jesus always recognizes the problem. He always recognizes the problem. Look at verse 5 and 6. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now look at what he says in verse 6. He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Think about that last phrase for a moment. He did this to test Philip because he already knew what he was going to do. Now you may say, okay, Jesus, that's a little bit underhanded. Why would you ask a question that you already had an answer for? I'll tell you, we do that all the time, especially with our children. I told you some months ago when Christmas is around that we had gotten Noah a bike. And Noah, the first day, it was halfway nice. I said, let's go ride my bike. So we go and then we start uh, pedaling and he's doing a great job. And as I'm following behind him, I'm seeing that the chain is hitting the guard, uh, you know, to the chain guard. And I began to watch him saying, well, that's not any good. And if he keeps riding, it's going to create a problem. And I knew that it was my fault because it had some assembly required. And Noah's dad isn't very good at those three words. So I put the guard wrong on the bike. So I said, Noah, let's go back to the garage. We've got to pull out some of the tools and we're going to fix this thing. And Noah, being an inquisitive four-year-old, says, Daddy, I want to help. And I said, Noah, what do you think's wrong with it? What do you think's wrong with the bike? Why is it making that noise? He says, Dad, I think I, think I got it. I said, what is it, Noah? I think the seat's on wrong. And I said, you think so? Why don't you work on the seat? Because I'm a, I see something wrong with the chain. Now, why did I do that? I knew what was wrong with the bike. 
But why did I ask that question? Because I want my son to think and begin to deduce what is wrong to be a problem solver. To begin to use that little mind of his. And I saw those little gears moving his head saying, all right, what is wrong with the bike? I'm not sure. I'll go with the seat. I know the seat. That's what we're going with. I wanted him to ask questions and begin to process. That's what Jesus is doing with his disciples. He sees a teaching opportunity. And he goes to Philip and he says, hey, what would you do? Understand this. Sometimes Jesus is going to ask you a question. He does not want you to try to figure it out. He wants you to get thinking the same way he is. When a problem comes and Jesus begins to leave you kind of hanging, you say, well, Jesus hasn't answered the question. It may be he's trying to get you on the same page that he's on. But take solace. When that problem comes, whatever it may be, it didn't catch Jesus off guard. It didn't catch. He's not sitting there going, what am I going to do with this? 5,000 people. Who do I call? Where do I go? Can we get pizzas here quick enough? Can we take care of this? Can we take care of He already knew what he was going to do next we see not only that he knows those things but that the solution the solution to our problem requires that we exhibit faith the solution requires us to exhibit faith jesus asked philip in uh, verse 7 uh, or as in verse 6 what philip would do philip gives an answer look at what he says in verse 7 eight months wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite this is not a response of faith, but it's one that has one, faith in, one foot in the spiritual realm and one foot planted in the physical. He wants to respond well. Philip, this is a good thing for Philip to try to do. But the problem is, is he's not exhibiting Christ-like faith. So what is he sitting saying? Okay, you know, all right, so we got uh, 5,000 men and we need this much food. And Tim from 5Bs has quoted this price. Eight months, and they might not even feed everybody. And that's what he says. He's like, Jesus, I think at my best, we have probably uh, 8, 000, uh, or, um, eight months of uh, cash would need, and it still wouldn't be enough. You know, Philip probably had a little American in him. It doesn't say in the text, but I think his mother was from the United States. Because what Philip does is what we as Americans do. Problem comes, all right, what are we going to do with the problem? All right, let's see how much. Okay, we've got $3,000 left on the MasterCard. Okay, I got 4000 on the Visa. All right. Uh, honey, what do you got left in your 401k? H- how much money do we have in equity in our home? All right, this problem's not too bad. Why? Because we can fix it with what's in our wallet or what's in our bank statement. That's what Philip does. He says, I'll try to fix it. And the way we can fix it is start thinking about money. Let me tell you something. If that's how you live, then I will tell you God's going to bring a problem that your money will take care of nothing in regards to it. Think about it. Bill Gates has got all the money in the world. But if he was diagnosed with cancer, no amount of money would take that cancer away. It's not about money. We see finally that not only do we see all these two things here, but we see that our response will fall short without faith. Our response will fall short. We want to respond well. These two disciples that share, we see Philip first of all share, and then the spotlight moves to Andrew. Now Andrew comes in, and Andrew's always known to be one that brings people to Jesus. Remember, Andrew meets Jesus, and who does he go get? He goes and gets his brother, Simon Peter, and he says, Hey, come, I found this guy. I think he's the Messiah, man. He's talking like the Messiah would. 
come and, and see this man. Well, what does Andrew go do? Andrew sees the problem. And he says, you know what? I'm not a money guy like Philip. So what am I going to I'm going to go work around the crowd. So Andrew goes and he starts talking with people. You got any food? Hey, it was like me in high school. That's what I did. I went around the tables. You got any food? And I'll tell you, it was very lucrative, as you can see. Okay, so I, he's going around and, and, no, hey, we didn't bring any food with us. Uh, how about you? No, we don't have any food. And then he sees this young boy and he says, hey, you, you got a lunch there. I see you, got, you brought your Lunchables with you. Come on with me. And he brings this boy, he brings his prehistoric Lunchable meal to him. And he says, come on, I want to take you to Jesus. And he goes to Jesus and he says, all right, here, Jesus, here's this boy. We're going to talk about what's in his lunch in a moment. But here's this boy. But look at what he says after it. He says in verse 9, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But look at the response. But how far will they go among so many? He does great in looking and trying to resolve it. And we would say, hats off, way to show initiative, way to show some gumption, Andrew. You went and you tried to resolve the problem. Good job. That shows some risk-taking, some entrepreneurship. That's good. Nice job, Andrew. But you know what? That's not the way we answer the problems that come in our lives. We don't start going around and trying to work off other people to try to get the problem taken care of. Both these men should have gone to Jesus and said, Jesus, we don't know how to fix this problem. Jesus, we don't have the answer to this problem. So by you asking us, our answer should be, Jesus, only you can fix the problem. And Philip goes and says, well, I think the money will work out. It would be a little tight, but we can do it. And Andrew says, well, I'll go look for people. And while those are good attempts, and while I would probably do something like that, what Jesus is wanting is when a problem comes, that we would believe there is no problem too big for him to solve. So what does Jesus do? What does he do? Look at what it says. Does he go and does he tell people, hey, look at my dumb disciples. Here I am, I've changed water into wine, I've healed the lame, I've taken care of the sick, and what are they doing? we got Mr. Moneybags over here. He's trying to figure out the problem by figuring out what we got in the money. And then we got Mr. Friendly Face over here, and he's going around trying to find a buddy or a friend who will bring lunches to us, and we'll maybe try to figure out how to deal with that. Do you see how dumb my disciples are? No, he doesn't say that. And I will tell you, when we try to fix our problems on our own, Jesus doesn't sit there and say, yeah, dummy, why are you trying to do that? But he teaches us. And I want to look at the next thing that we see. And the next thing is our answer to question number one. While there's no problem too big for Jesus to solve, we learn next that there is no person too small to serve Jesus. There's no person too small. Look at what happens. He asks the question, can we fix the problem? The two disciples say, no, we can't fix the problem. So he begins to... Take over. Look at what Jesus says. It says in verse 8, we learn that Andrew introduces himself or introduces a boy to Jesus. Now, we know little, very little about this boy. It doesn't say much. It says just he's a little boy. Now, he wouldn't have even been counted if they only counted the men into that 5,000. This boy was so inconsequential to the whole situation that he wouldn't have been counted in that 5,000. Yet Andrew brings them and his lunch to Jesus. Now, look at the interaction that we see going on. First of all, we are taught a truth. The first truth is that we are called to serve. This is huge. We are called to serve no matter the size of the gift. We're called to serve no matter the size of the gift. Look at verse 9. Here's a boy with five barley loaves 
and two small fish. Let's look at the word boy for a moment. In the Greek, the boy literally means small child. Small boy would probably mean someone of an elementary school age. I was reading one of the commentaries, and it said that his Irish ancestry would be the best way to define this word boy. In the Irish, they would have called him a wee little lad. And he says that's probably what this boy was, a wee little lad. But next we see not only was he a wee little lad, but he had a wee little lunch. It says he had five small barley loaves and two fish. Now, this gives us a picture of the poverty of this boy because we see that he has barley loaves. And what that is, is the barley was the cheapest and lowest kind of bread you could eat. I mean, this was, this was the stuff that you'd find, the day-old bread. It was not very good. In fact, in the Jewish Talmud, there was a passage which once spoke of two men where one man says, what a fine stock of barley bread, to which the other man said, well, at least the horses and the donkeys will be happy. Barley was the low of the lows. I mean, it was, you know, it was stuff that you would find on the back shelf in the back room of a grocery store. There was nothing to it. It was insignificant. It wasn't even enough to take care of it. Five. That wouldn't be very much. It says then he had two fish. Now the Greek tells us that these would have been the equivalent of two small fish, like two little sardines. Not very big. Not to take care of ten people, let alone five thousand. All of this is in the hands of a boy. Insignificant and insufficient was his gift. In the hands of a boy, it takes care excuse me, of his meal. Yet in the hands of Jesus, it becomes sufficient and significant, not for a boy's meal or the boy's family's meal, but 5,000. Think about that for a moment in your own life. Think about that as you offer yourself as a living sacrifice to Jesus. The greatest excuse I hear on why people don't serve God and don't serve in the local church is I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to offer. Tim, I don't speak like you. Tim, I don't sing like those people do on the worship team. Tim, I don't have that kind of interactive ability that the children's directors have dealing with our children. Tim, I don't know how to teach the Bible. Tim, I don't know how to swing a hammer. Excuses, excuses, excuses. But you know what Jesus says? Bring me what you got. Bring me what you got. And I'll tell you, I know this for a fact that if you are a child of God, there is gifts within you that are laying dormant right now, either because of ignorance or because of rebellion. And you're sitting there, you're saying, I got nothing. And by you saying, I have nothing, means that you don't believe that God can take nothing and make it into something. That's what we see with this boy. He had nothing. There was nothing of value to this boy's lunch. In the hands of him, it did nothing for anybody but himself. In the hands of Jesus, he took care of a great multitude. That's what Jesus wants to do with you. And that's why we do things like the equipping workshop next week that we'll be starting, talking about God's divine design for you. We want to get into your hands the understanding and the idea that God wants you to serve. Not with my gifts, not with my abilities, but with yours. And to find out how God has made you so that then He can use you not to just take care of little things, but to take care of big things that He would desire for you. And that's what we want to accomplish. 
but it leads to uh, a response. It requires something because we see, secondly, our service to God runs parallel with the sacrifice of the gift. Let's look at the text again. We see that he brings two fishes, five loaves. The quantity and the quality were nothing to talk about. But look at what it says. Jesus took them. I think it's very important that we look at what's not written in the Bible. I don't say that very often, but I think it's important here. Jesus takes them and he uses them. But John doesn't say, well, the, the boy said, well, hey, all right, I can live with a half a fish and two loaves. Jesus, you can have the rest. He doesn't say, all right, Jesus, you can have the fishes, but I want the loaves. He doesn't say, Jesus, you can have the fish, or you can have the loaves and I'll have the fish. He doesn't say anything like that. What do we see happen? He takes what he has and he gives it to Christ. You know, part of the reason why we don't see effectiveness in ministry, part of the reason why we don't see life transformation isn't because we don't have the right programs or we don't have the right setup or the facilities aren't there. Many times it's because we do not give our all to Jesus. We'll say, all right, Jesus, I'll serve. I'll serve, but make sure that it doesn't uh, take away from me working out at the gym or don't make sure that it doesn't deal with Sally's uh, uh, piano recital or it doesn't take away from uh, Billy's soccer games. I'll serve as long as it doesn't mean that I'll miss uh, American Idol on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday night and, 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 and make sure that we don't miss Sally's birthday party, okay? Because that's important. We can't miss her 1400th birthday party and she's only three years old. We can't miss it. So I can serve here. I got half an hour to serve you, Jesus. That's not what the little boy says. He says, Jesus, do with all that I have whatever you want. I tell you, when God's people start serving in that way, lives will be changed. When we give ourselves over to Jesus and say, all right, everything's off, Jesus. You do what you will. That's when miracles begin to happen. It says that he gave his all. We look at the widow and her two mites. She gave nothing. It was insignificant. Two mites is nothing. And all these big guys came in with their escalades and all that, and they drove up, dropped all these big money bags in the uh, offering plate and say, look how great I am. And this little woman comes up. She's got nothing. And Jesus says what she gave was greater value than everything else combined. When we give from insignificant and insufficient ways, and use it out, and do it out of uh, love and faithfulness to God. God changes it and makes it so much greater. There's one other thing we see in this, and that is that our service, when we do this, will be second guessed by others. It'll be second guessed by others. The question is asked: What will a boy's lunch do with a crowd so big? This boy gives what he has to Jesus. I don't think he's sitting there in this big theological thing saying, "All right." There's going to be a bald man a couple thousand years from now. He's going to preach about how great I was in doing this. I think he just gave out of the willingness of his heart to give. But it was second guess. Look at what's said. What will this do to feed so many? I'll tell you, when you start living your life like that, people aren't going to say, wow, that's great. You're awesome. You know what will happen? You'll be second guessed. You'll be second guessed. And you know, look who second guesses. It's not the crowd. 
It's not the people that are on the uh, periphery or peripheral area, if you will. But what it is, is it's the disciples. Andrew says, hey, I'll bring them. And think about what this kid must have been thinking. He says, come on, come here. you got two, lo- two uh, fish, five loaves, come with me, Jesus wants you. And then he brings them to Jesus. And he says, I found this guy, he's got some lunch. <laughs> Can you believe it? How is that going to take care of anybody? I would have been like, hey, you brought me here. You don't need to make fun of my lunch. I'll take it. I'll go sit down. But this boy gives, and he's second-guessed. Let me tell you something. When you start living lives of faith, and Jesus becomes your number one desire, Christians will second-guess you. The people within the inner sanctum of God's people start saying, hey, you know... I'm sensing more and more that you're becoming more and more generous with your money. And I'm seeing you give to people and taking care of needs. And you know, you should be thinking retirement. You should be thinking, you know, hey, it's important that you leave something for your kids. Don't give so much. The thing I hear so many times from people, and I know they say it out of love, is, Tim, you know, you're serving in a lot of ways. Cut back just a little. Pull back. You know, you need to take care of yourself. Let me tell you something. I say this with all sincerity, and I know I've got to watch my time and be with my family, but I learned at a young age that I don't got a lot of time here on this earth. And I make sure that my family's needs are met. I make sure that I take care of my boys and I take care of the needs of my wife. But I will tell you, above all that, Jesus is number one. And I'm going to give my all. And the lesson I learned at a young age as a freshman was that God will take you at any time. And the question is, am I going to be ready? Am I going to have accomplished what God had for me? So yes, I received that from you. Yes, I need to take care of myself in that. But I'm going to serve as long and as hard as I can because that's the only thing I know. I look at my parents. I was just talking with uh, one of the guys, uh, Jeff Christensen, before the service. He was asking about my parents. I say, man, they're just serving the Lord. They're full of zeal and full of fervor for the Lord, and that's where I want to be. Yeah, they take care of their grandkids, and they take care of my brother and I. But above all that, they're serving the Lord. And I don't want to second guess. I don't want to say, well, you know, you're not spending much time with my boys. Spend a little time with them. Buy my boys some things. I want them to serve the Lord because I want them on the day of judgment to stand before Jesus Christ. And they don't say, hey, Great job, Bill and Michelle. You were there for your boys and your grandchildren. But that they say, well done, good and faithful servant. You served me with all that you had. Don't let people second guess your service for the Lord. Work as hard as you can. That's why it says all throughout the Bible, do the work of the Lord. Do the work of the Lord. Excel in the work of the Lord, Paul says in the book of 2 Corinthians. Why? Because it's work. It's not some vacation. It is hard work. We need to roll up our sleeves and say, I am going to serve the Lord as hard as I can today as it is still called today. And if we would just grab a hold of that, that's where the miracle takes place. i got to get going. How do you do that? Two very quick things. Number one, transfer all that you have to Jesus. Give it all to Jesus. Your money your job, your family, your desires, your pursuits, your retirement package. Give everything to Jesus. That's what the boy does. He gives it all to Jesus. But then look at what Jesus does with it. He transforms it through His miraculous powers. Now, there's wisdom in that. Now, I want to be very careful. I don't want you to 
all, you know, I don't think it would happen, but I want you to come in and write a big check to the church. And yes, we need to make sure our needs are met. We need to work to be able to support our families. And I'm not asking you, nor do I, give everything I have to the Lord when it comes to all that. There's things we need to take care of. But the question is, have we released it to Christ? Or have we released it to the mortgage company? Have we released it to Christ or are we releasing it uh, to our purchases and to our shopping sprees? Have we released it to Christ or are we dealing to make sure that we have vacation? Are we releasing it to Christ or are we making sure that we have everything that we could ever want or desire? Do we release it? Do we get the new iPod? Even though we got four of the old ones. Are we releasing it? God isn't saying, I want all your money. I want all your possessions. He knows we need a place to live. He knows we need a car to go to and fro. But the question is, are those His or are those yours? In America, we say, okay, Jesus, I'll, I'll give 2% we give on average. And some of us say, well, I tithe. Look at me, 10%. Or I, I start with the tithe. Even the holier than thou's will come up and say, well, I tithe. I start there. And then I give more. It's... God doesn't need our money. But the question is, is not the amount that you're putting in the offering plates or taking care of needs of others, but the question is, have you transferred all that you have that if Jesus did say, hey, I don't want 1% or 2%, I want all of it. Would you be willing to say, yes, it's already there, Lord. It's in your hands already. I'm willing to release it. That's what excites me about people that go on full-time missions. Because they say, you know what? I have a good life here in America, in suburbia. But you know what? I'm going to leave it. And I'm going to go. And I don't know what to expect. But I've given everything to Jesus. Whether I'm here or I'm in Nigeria, God's going to take care of me. You know, that's when Jesus transforms your finances. He transforms the way you look at life, the way you look at relationships, by giving everything to Jesus. Thirdly, we see one final thing. And that is that from this famous passage, we see that there is no provision that results in such a great satisfaction. This is where our desire is met. You say, all right, there's no problem too big for Jesus to solve. And there's no person too small for Jesus to use. Where does my stuff come in? Timmy began talking about God wanting to bless me and God wanting to minister to me. And all you talk about is my responsibility. Tim, do this. Or Tim, be that. Where's my part in this? Here's where it's at. Look at the text. It says, in verse 10 through 13, he said, Jesus says, have the people sit down. John uh, must have been a farmer of some sort. He says, there was plenty of grass in that place. And the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. He adds that to us so that we know what's going on. Verse 11, Jesus then takes the loaves, gives thanks, and distributes to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Verse 12, when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. This is where Jesus is the great teacher. He tells the disciples to have the people sit. One of the other Gospels says they were put into groups of 50. That's where this pastor got this idea of delegating and uh, corporate structure from this passage. It says that he gave thanks. There's a whole message there that even Jesus, with all that he had as being God, he showed that he had a dependence on God in all circumstances. Then we see the miracle. He multiplies the bread and the fish. 
And the disciples just keep handing it out. Now, this is where it begins. Okay? First of all, we see in verse 12 and 13 that the provision that comes, first of all, strengthens the faltering. It strengthens the faltering. Here is where it's at. Remember that the disciples, there's two responses from the disciples. How would you fix this problem? And two human uh, things come out of it. And they even second-guess them. They say, even with that amount of money, we won't feed them. Even with this lunch, it won't go very far in feeding this many people. And Jesus says, all right. It's in my hands now. And he starts beginning through his miraculous hand, starts bringing out the buffet line. He brings it out. And what happens? He has those guys serving. So the guys come, and they start handing out the food. And let's say I'm Peter, and I'm hanging out here. Let's use Philip and Andrew. And I'm carrying the food, and I'm going around, and I'm serving people. And I see, hey, wait a minute, I'm out. Go back to Jesus, because that's where the source was. Gives me more. And I go, and I keep feeding more people. He strengthens them. How does he do that? Because Jesus begins to tell us something that is so critical for us as Christians. When we run low, when we lack faith, go to Jesus. He'll give you more. Go to Jesus. He'll give you more. Remember, these guys are going to be, a couple years from this point, are going to be uh, um, living without Jesus. And they're going to remember that day where all those people came. And they're going to ask the question, all right, where do I turn? I don't have the answer for this question. Wait a minute. I remember I didn't have the right answer when it was time to feed the 5,000. And I went to Jesus and he gave me the answer. If we would just do that as Christians, we would be so far better off. If we would just remember, just as those disciples did, hey, when I run out of something, I need to turn around, I need to go to Jesus. That is where our faith is strengthened. Let me tell you something. Your faith will not be strengthened by you saying, well, I, what i got to do is i got to get in the Word, i got to pray, i got to be in a small group. I gotta... If you think that that's the way you receive faith, you're wrong. But what it is is going to Jesus. Now, you can do that through prayer. You can do that through the Word. But make sure that you're first saying, I'm going to Jesus because He's the source. Not because I'm going to these things, the Word and prayer, because that's how I've seen other people get the source of power, the source of strength. Next we see, not only does it take care of the faltering, my favorite part, it stuffs the famished. It stuffs the famished. Look at verse 12. It says that when they all had had, what does it say? Mm -hmm. When they all had had enough. The people went from being hungry to being stuffed. You know, is that true on a spiritual level when it comes to Christ? The other Gospels say that they were completely satisfied. Let me ask you this question. Are you completely satisfied with Jesus Christ? Are you? Has He stuffed you? We are called to hunger and thirst for righteousness. To taste and to see that the Lord is good. And the question is for God's people here in this place is, are you satisfied with Christ? John Redmond is going to be teaching a class next week led by John Piper talking about battling unbelief. And John Piper's whole premise is, is the reason why we fall to sin is because we don't delight in Christ so the things of lesser value we find ourselves hungering after. Why? Because we are hungry. Have you ever heard you're not supposed to go grocery shopping when you're hungry?
we were satisfied. When I go to the grocery store, when I've eaten, I don't come out with much. But when I go hungry, I'll come out with stuff I don't need. And that's the life that Christ wants for us. Are we completely satisfied? Finally, we see that the provision supplies the faithful. Look at verse 12 and 13. Everybody is stuffed, and yet there's still more to go around. Understand this, when Christ moves in your life, He just doesn't give you enough. Just say, all right, I'm just going to give them enough. But He blesses us with more than that. It says that He tells the disciples to gather them up and put them into baskets. And He says, 12 baskets are brought back. Let's think about that for a moment. 12 baskets... One, two, three, four, five, six, nine, ten, eleven. How many disciples? How many? Twelve. How ironic. This is, don't put, I hear Bibles being put away. I know I've gone long. We'll close with a word of prayer and we'll be done here in a second. But I want to talk to the people in this place that are serving in ministries. I don't, I don't know what ministry you're serving with, but I know what happens on Sunday mornings when I leave this place. I begin to say, you know what? I wish I could just go to church and just worship with my family. I'm so nervous by getting up here. I sit in the back. I don't even get to sit with my wife. And it's so nice to, to just sit with my wife and to sing. And if I could just spend time maybe once in a while watching my kids. Or be, I'm usually teaching a Sunday school class. Or, and it would be neat to be with the boys and do that. You know, I wish I didn't have to serve that much. Or the things I miss out on. I always got to be here early. I always got to leave here at the late, you know, I'm locking up and Keith's here earlier than I am these days. So he gets to open up the place. I'm letting, willing him do that. But we always are here early and we always are the last ones to leave. When do I just get to come and just be blessed? When do I come and I just receive? I hear that a lot. You know, I'm tired, I'm tired of being in the, in the ministry because it just, I, I wasn't receiving. I hear that from my brothers in the ministry that are leaving. And many of them are leaving. Why? Well, I just, my needs aren't being met. Let me tell you something. Your needs are being met. And maybe they're not being met the way you want them to, but look at what happens. These disciples uh, serve. And I'm wondering if Jesus is thinking and listening to their hearts and they're saying, man, I, I wish I had some fish and loaves, but here I am serving out the stupid stuff. And my goodness, that's not in the text. It's in uh, Tim's translation coming out in Zondervan in October. Okay? And, uh, you know, what, what am I going to do? Oh, you know, I'm always serving these dumb people. And Jesus, they're compassion and shepherds without, sheep without shepherds. And what does he mean by that? And, all right, I'll keep serving. I don't know about you, but isn't that how we many times minister? We get tired. We get weak. We get weary. Someone says that maybe we did something maybe differently than they would have wanted, and they're offended by us. And it's like, you know what? I don't want to serve anymore. Look at what it says. Twelve baskets, twelve disciples. Let me tell you something. When you serve the Lord, you don't just get a meal. You get a basket. And that basket may be today. I will tell you some of the greatest encouragement I get from people, and I'm not telling you to write me letters or anything like that and encourage me, but I'll tell you, there's a lot of difficult days as an elder, but it's sweet when you open up a card from someone in your church that says, hey, I'm just so thankful for what you're doing in our church. God bless you. You don't get that when you're not serving the Lord. But when you serve the Lord and have an impact on people, people open up their hearts. It's like a basket of fish and loaves right there for Tim and Amanda to read. We, at one point, Keith and I had been at a low point last fall. 
really wondering, man, you know, how, how are we going to deal with this? How are we going to deal with that? And we just were struggling with a lot of things, a lot of ministry questions that we were having about where to lead the church in some areas of particular ministry. And both of us, which is not very common, we both were very down. And Ben Hall, I don't like telling people who it is, but I want to encourage this man. Ben Hall was new to our church. Many of you may not even know him. And he wrote a letter to us. And I remember coming home after one night of debriefing with Keith about another problem that had happened. And I just was like, I'm so sick and tired of the people and their issues. Can't they just figure it all out? Can't he just keep his mouth shut and not call his wife fat or ugly? Is he that dumb? And I got done. I was so tired. I'm being open and honest with you. And, and, And I'm so tired. And I get this letter, and it says, Dear Tim and Keith, I just want to tell you the impact that you've had on my family's life. We were looking for a church. We didn't know where to go, and we found Village. And the people have been great. You guys have been great. Keep up the good. Whatever you're doing, keep it up. It's a basket of loaves and fishes. But I'll tell you, even greater than a letter is one day we will stand before Almighty God. And all those long hours of ministry, all those times dealing with those kids and the ADD and the lack of Ritalin, all those times that we sit there and said, it's not doing anything. I'm holding babies right now. Those that don't even hear what I'm saying because they're holding babies. What good am I doing? Let me tell you something. One day Jesus is going, and I'm going to sound like a Ray Bolt song, but one day Jesus is going to stand. He's going to say, you know what? You had an impact on the lives of so many people. Think of the boy. His lunch had an impact on 5,000. You don't think holding a baby in the nursery or teaching a kid's Sunday school class or leading a small group or helping build this building that's going to be started here pretty soon isn't going to have an impact? It will. And that's when Jesus hands us our basket of loaves and fishes. Let God give you the desires of your heart. Stop working for Him and start serving Christ. That's where He wants us. And that's where I pray we will be. Let's pray and close our service. Father God, we've gone long. But Lord, I know that this message, while I learned it at a young age, has had such a defining place in my life this week. Father, I pray for us as a church that we would transfer all that we have and give it to You. And Lord, allow You to change it. Lord, we can't change people. We can't change society. But if we give ourselves fully over to You, You promise that not only will we find You when we seek You with all our hearts, but that You will use us to do great things in the name of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we pray for that as a church. Father, I pray for those who are sitting in the crowd of 5,000 who just continue to enjoy the free meal. And, Lord, I pray that they would be moving from being in the crowd to being that boy that would be that boy that would hand whatever they have over to you. Father, I pray for those that are like the disciples who are tired, who are burned out, who are wore out from the ministry. And Father, that they would come and that they would receive from you not just a meal, but a basket to take home and to enjoy. Father, I pray that they would be encouraged today. That, Lord, they would know that they're not serving men or women or children but they're serving one, you in heaven. And Father, that we would never grow weary in doing good. Lord, let that be our model. Let that be our claim. Let that be all that we are so that in Christ Jesus, people will see lives changed. 
It's only by your hands. It's only through your work that we can accomplish it. So we praise you and thank you for what you're going to do. And we pray that this being the desire of Village Bible Church heart, that we will receive it and that we will give you the glory on the day that it comes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go and fellowship with one another.